makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Betu Wastelo, Chante Waste na Pate Yuzap Yellow, Le Unkipiki He Wastelo. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart, and it's good for all of us to be here today. And in addition to relativity, this is First Voices Radio. And I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Tiokazin Ghost Horse, and this is an all native hosted, all native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill, Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio, and our studio engineer is Malcolm Byrne. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio.org for archiving and downloading and listening. While Dr. Keisha Supernaut is Metis, Papachais, British, and the director of the Institute of Prairie, excuse me, let's start that all over, and the director of the Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology at the University of Alberta, an award-winning teacher, researcher, and writer. Her research interests include indigenous archaeology, the use of digital technologies in archaeology, and heart-centered archaeological practice. And she's the director of the Exploring Metis Identity Through Archaeology, project, a collaborative research project, which takes a relational approach to exploring the material past of Métis communities, including her and her own family in Western Canada. So recently, you have been hearing on First Voices Radio the discovery uh, since May of 2021 of this year um, that these 215 bodies in Western Canada lead to account where there are 140 residential schools in Canada with about 9 to 10 uncovered. And many speculate the numbers, but it's not the numbers that we are, you know, um, centering this broadcast on and when we report. And so we are keeping a general count, a general thought process with those involved with the work in locating the resting places of ancestors and relatives in historic cemeteries around residential schools with indigenous communities. And with that, I want to honor those who have been found. I could give you a rough estimate of of the 9 to 10 residential schools with 130 left. There are 
right now have been found over 7,310 bodies in those residential boarding schools in Canada. So for right now, I'd like you to listen to Keisha Supernaut as she explains to you the process of how they find these bodies. And right now, we'd like to go and honor Keisha Supernaut for her work. It's an honor to have you here, Keisha Supernaut. I don't know where to begin. I just think the work that you're doing is so long overdue. When I think about this, all the stories were there, but nothing could be done about it. And just just seems to be that what you're doing now is a breakthrough for all of us. So mm-hmm. first of all, I want to welcome you to First Voices Radio, Keisha Supernaut. I'm really happy to be here. I'm honored to be part of this conversation with you today. I want to know what... What brought this to your attention? Was it somebody coming to request that you do the work that you do, that the scientific work you do? Or is it just something, a hunch that you, or a community that came forward says, Keisha, help us? So I first got involved in doing this sort of work because of longstanding relationships with Indigenous communities. So I've been working as an archaeologist in collaboration and partnership with Indigenous communities for a long time. And as those relationships continued, and of course, this includes both uh, with my own nation, with the Métis Nation, and also with other nations, people would start asking questions about the use of technology, of these scientific techniques to find unmarked graves. It would come up, they'd say, oh, well, we know that there's this over here, this area that there might be graves over here. Sometimes that was around these uh, residential schools. Other times it was other places in the community. And because people kept asking, I started to think, okay, well, how can I build my capacity to support nations answer that question. I already had used a lot of technologies in archaeology throughout my whole career, but then started to particularly build more capacity to do this ground penetrating radar. Um, Also, many nations don't want archaeologists to start just by digging things up, right? So it was also about how can we look below the surface of the ground without having to dig? All those things came together. And then um, once we had some of that capacity, nations would ask us, can you come and help? Can you help find these graves? Um, So my first time doing work at a residential school was in 2018, when the Muscogan First Nation and University of Saskatchewan and the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation kind of invited me into a project to support Muscogan to look for unmarked graves that they knew were behind their residential school, but they didn't know exactly where and how, what the extent was and all that kind of thing. So when other nations come to you to request something, or it seems like there'd be a stack now um, of many of these other residential schools going going forward from here on. Um, And I'm thinking about on this side of the border, the U.S., you know, how slow things seem to be moving. It's like moving a bigger rock. But yet, you know, the work is ongoing um, from those very early days when we were saying, oh, my grandfather's buried over here. But we don't know exactly where he is. And I think um, your work took the guesswork more, more or less out of it and mm-hmm. pinpointed a lot of things, you know. And was there any formalities like uh, what I'm interested in is ceremonies before yeah. you even went forward with uh, your research? We always start this work in ceremony. And of course, those ceremonies will differ depending on the nations with whom we're working. And But it's very important, uh, obviously, for the nations to, to do that work, but also as much as possible for the research team where appropriate to be involved. Um, so often in the places that I work, there are pipe ceremonies. So, you know, pipe carriers will lift the pipe in ceremony. Sometimes we're involved, sometimes we're not. 
um, which is totally, uh, you know, as appropriate. We follow direction from the community on that. And then when we're on site, so pipe ceremonies will often happen at the beginning of the work. Uh, there may be a sacred fire that's lit, um, those sorts of things. But on site, we also engage in ceremony every time we, we start the work. We start the day with the cleansing through smudge, using medicines. We often offer tobacco to uh, the children, really, in many ways, to mm. because they are providing knowledge about where they are. Um, and we want to acknowledge uh, that what they're sharing with us through through the offering of tobacco. Uh, we also will uh, cleanse our equipment with the, with the smoke as well, um, just because it is running over these places and wanting to be very respectful in that. Uh, and we always do the smudge at the beginning and the end of each day because I also want to protect the spiritual health of my team and, and myself. This is very heavy work, and spending the day walking over the graves is very difficult. And we don't want to take that back um, to where we, when we sleep and when we do other things. And then often there'll be closing ceremonies as well, as determined by the different nations. That's very important. Thank you for that. As a layman, I was asked this question, well, is it the same? Can you ask her if it's the same as when I take my metal detecting device out and go look for coins? Yet it seems to be a deeper technology. Yes, it is not the same technology as you would use with a metal detector. Um, and also it is not uh, another image people often have in their mind is an x-ray and it's neither of those things really uh, it is a wave so it's a device that sends a wave down into the ground and what that wave is mapping so if anyone's ever used a fish finder what you you know that's sort of a similar principle where you send a signal down into into the water and then it finds where the fish are this uh, helps us just just tell where there's differences in the soil. And when you dig a grave, you change the soil because you mix everything up. And so what we really are mapping is basically creating a three-dimensional map of, uh, you know, things like pits, rocks, tree roots, um, rodent holes, pipes, anything that's underneath the ground. But then we interpret <clears throat> and look at the information and say, okay, well, this is a rodent hole. This is a tree root. This is a metal pipe. This is a pit that's about you know a meter like uh, about six feet long maybe three or four feet down uh, of a shape that we'd expect a grave this is most likely to be a grave wow i'm thinking about the the it, the, the graves won't go away in other words they'll be there yeah. so uh, yeah. in, in the native world there seems to be let's take our time making sure that the ceremonies are performed. And then, like I mentioned earlier, there may be a stack, but this is keeping you busy, is it not? Yes, keeping, keeping us, myself and, and the folks who work with me at the Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology very busy. This isn't quite a specialized um, set of knowledge in terms of how the technology works, how we use it to find unmarked graves. And there's not that many people who know how to use it and even fewer of us who are indigenous right and therefore i think since the news was first released through to come to Shwetmak in may we've spoken with over 30 different nations about their schools now we won't be able to work on the ground with all of them but they're coming to us for advice um, to understand the process yeah so it's said it's not as simple as coming out and doing a scan with the ground penetrating radar there's a lot of other things we need to understand about the history and the landscape uh, who needs to be involved in the conversations what ceremonies need to be put in place how survivors need supports this work is very 
painful. And we see that even just the news from Tacoma and Sushwam, like the way it's impacting survivors and intergenerational survivors uh, has been right, really quite profound. And we don't want this work to do more harm, right? We want it to be something that helps communities move toward healing, but also towards justice and accountability for what happened. So I always try to work with communities to to support them building out whatever that process might look for them. Um, and also every school is a little bit unique in that what's happened since the school was in operation, right? What's happened to the land around it. If big areas have been dug up, there may not be graves left to find, right? And, you know, certainly 40, 50, 60 years ago, when people were building things, they were not nearly as attentive to um, not disturbing ancestors as I think people at least now because of laws and and regulations that are in place. So I think there's a lot of things to consider at any school and each one needs its own kind of plan. Thank you for that. Keisha, as an Indigenous archaeologist, I'm thinking about how that relationship with you, with each community is is sort of meted out and then you described, you know, what what the procedures and protocol is. Um, And I'm thinking, are there other archaeologists that you're training or that want to be involved? Yes, absolutely. There's a whole community of archaeologists, many of whom have worked closely with Indigenous communities before, but there's also a newer generation and increasingly more Indigenous people coming to learn about archaeology. So I'm always very attentive to uh, supporting my graduate students in particular, so people who are doing graduate degrees. I have a number of Indigenous students right now that I'm, I'm helping support but also wanting to help communities build capacity, right? So beyond what I might do in in the archeologists who I know and who I'm training, but if there are folks within the community who want to learn how to do this, if nations want to be able to do it themselves, right? To collect this data and information themselves, we are absolutely wanting to support that and develop some training programs that allow nations to start to build that capacity, which hopefully then will lead to more indigenous archeologists Mm -hmm. So we can use the tools of archaeology to tell our own histories and stories in ways that non-Indigenous people might understand. Right. Thank you for that. Again, probably more of a standard question. I know this costs money. Every time you roll out one of your ground-penetrating radar machines, there's a cost to it, the time and effort, labor, getting their costs. And who's funding this here? So in Canada, the... The two, both the federal level and then our provincial level governments uh, have allocated somewhat substantial funding and millions of dollars um, to supporting nations to do this. The money has been allocated. It's not always flowing to communities just yet, um, but certainly the ground penetrating radar work takes uh, resources, money, and if you're working with someone like myself who's with a university, there's different costs usually Uh, would only need sort of expenses covered. But if you're working with a a company, then they also have fees and it can cost thousands of dollars a day for a team Mm -hmm. to come out if you're working in in that sphere. And these landscapes are usually quite large. So, and ground penetrating radar is pretty slow. And at this point, the best way to do it is to put the ground penetrating radar unit on physically on the ground. And we maybe can cover an, you know, a quarter acre a day. So if you have 200 acres to search or 100 acres to search, that is months of just pulling around, pushing around a ground penetrating radar. And the, the costs of that are immense, right? Yeah. Uh, and so they're, the federal and provincial governments in Canada are paying for it. And, and they have made the commitment to do that. Um, 
And that includes also all the other things that need to be in place, right? So if there's memorials or if there's forensic work that communities choose to, to do, that also needs to be resourced. And that's as, if not more expensive than ground penetrating radar. Is this somewhat of a uh, seasonal work too during the summer? Um, yeah. yeah, so that would so it be- depends on where you are. So oh. it definitely is seasonal work in most of Canada um, because of the, the northern climate. And, you know, I'm currently located in the Miskwetewis Gaigan, also known as Edmonton. And here I'm basically, it's, you know, mid-late mid, October. I probably won't be able to get back out until April because we are going to be snow and, um, you know, the equipment will work in, in the snow to an extent, but it doesn't work as well. And also people don't work as well. So you're not getting the best results when you're doing it in the middle of, of winter. Um, so we'll be back out probably in the spring. You mentioned um, that the federal and provincial governments are funding you. And now the big question for me is, since many Native people were in church institutions, in that sense, are they coming forward with any financial aid? The churches haven't really stepped up. Uh, they've talked about trying to fundraise to support communities. And my understanding of, you know, church uh, finances are you shouldn't have to fundraise <laughs> to be able to support Indigenous communities in this. So I would say that the governments have, st uh, have stepped up much more so than the churches at this point, even though it very much was a, you know, uh, it was federally funded, but church run institutions. And many of the abusers were members of the church, right? They were priests and they were nuns and they were fathers and brothers and all these things within those, those church. And so I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. Churches need to release more of the information that they have and they need to provide more funding. Uh, this is such a great thing to hear that you're doing the work. And, you know, I've interviewed other survivors, so to speak, and um, their individual stories is, is so compelling that, you feel like you need to get it out, but I think it, it's in time, it'll come out and maybe make the horizon a little bit brighter for Indigenous peoples that now we're known about and now you're part of that history bringing this to light. Um, and I think the relationship that Native people have with the land or are losing with the land actually nowadays is that maybe we can reconnect somehow and those Canadians also can do the, much of the same um, because at this time of climate change, as they say, uh, but we do need to understand that we're all in this together. And this is why I mentioned why doesn't the church get involved? Because they're in it together, too. They're a, a major cause of what happened to us and continues to happen to Native people. But I'd like to thank you for being here, Keisha Supernant. Is there any, as an Indigenous, I always say that Indigenous archaeologist, as Keisha Supernant, as a Métis woman, what are your thoughts about going forward from, from this point on? I hope that this is sort of a new horizon for non-Indigenous people understanding the depth and extent of the impact of these institutions on our people and that they will be able to get behind really supporting us in making real change to our futures, right? So I hope ultimately that it leads to brighter Indigenous futures um, that are supported by non-Indigenous people recognizing the harm that's been done, but also recognizing our strength, our resilience, and supporting our reconnection and our resurgence. And so for me, that's helps to keep me going, is that this can provide those answers and can really teach non-Indigenous people about the impacts of these, these horrific institutions so that we can move forward in a better way.
Thank you so much. That's, I saw in, in my mind's eye, you all, your team out there, and actually you're enacting the prayer that we've been asking for a hundred years or so. But thank you. It's really an honor, Keisha, to have you here. Really, truly thank you uh, for being here and sharing your, your work and, and your news and uh, yourself with, yes. with the people, the listeners here. So thank you. It's an honor. Hi, hi. Kananaskomitin for having me. I really appreciate being here. So I'll keep up with you to see what goes on. Please do. Yeah. And we can return back and have a conversation about what's, because it's going to be, I have a feeling this is going to be a huge part of my life for the next several years, at least. And I'm just, uh, it's just a matter of finding out how to continue to care for myself while still trying to uh, support as many communities as I can, because it is a heavy burden and my shoulders can bear a lot, but there are times it gets too heavy. So well, there's someone down here in New York that's supporting you. So thank you so much. Thank you. And we can't (laughs) wait for more work. Yeah. We, we shouldn't have to have done this, but we're doing it now. And good luck on your journey too. Oh yeah. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Take Take care. And this is Dr. Keisha Supernaut, who is my tea, Baba Chase, British and the Director of Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology at the University of Alberta in Canada. And we'll be right back.
And that is a Lakota lullaby. And to pronounce this correctly is Lakota, Lakota, not Lakota or Dakota or Minnesota. It's Sota. So it would be Lakota, right? It means something when you say it that way. Otherwise, Lakota or North Dakota or South Dakota does not mean anything. But you say Lakota, that was a Lakota Olawan or lullaby. It means achante washte, hoxila lake ishtima means good hearted boy, go to sleep tonight and uh, it's basically have a good night. That's all he's saying. So I'd like to leave that one with you and go into our next interview. My guest in this half hour is Leah Hale um, from the Sisseton Wapitan Dakota and Dene Nations. She makes her home in St. Paul, Minnesota with her companion and children. Leah is a producer for her for Twin Cities PBS and best known for her first feature documentary, The People's Protectors, a vision maker media grant production and winner of the 2019 Upper Midwest Emmy Award for Best Cultural Documentary in 2020. Leah was awarded the Sundance Institute Merata Mita, which is uh, the Fellowship for Indigenous Artists and attended the 2020 Berlin Nail European Film Market as a Native Fellow. And Leah is currently working on her second feature, Bring Her Home, a documentary that follows three indigenous women fighting to vindicate and honor their missing and murdered relatives. When not producing feature films, Leah works on a variety of short-form content in efforts to create social change within the Midwest region. So I'd like to honor and begin with Leah Hale. Well, first of all, um, whoever is out there watching Chante Washte Anape Chiyuza Pie, Lea Heo Imakia Pie, Namakota Ye, Oyate, Mithawakihanas Situan, Gah, Wakpituan, Gah, Shina, Hare, Hare Hahawi Takia Pie. Um, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate the opportunity. My name is Lea Heo, and on my maternal side of my family, I come from the Dakota people from Sisseton Wapiton. Um, South Dakota, and on my paternal side, I come from the Dene Nation out of the Four Corners area um, in Oak Springs, Arizona. So I'm happy to be here today. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. It's an honor to have you here on First Voices Radio. And I think we had you a few years ago on First Voices Radio, and you made a film back then which uh, really brought my attention to there's young filmmakers out there, and as you put it, vision maker as you are, the people's protectors was the name of that film. But now yes. you're working on a new one, Bring Her Home. And watching this, the, the trailer that you sent out about following these three indigenous women fighting for, to vindicate and actually give honor to those murdered and missing indigenous women relatives and probably some boys or men, but not like the overwhelming missing and murdered indigenous women. So I want to ask you, there are three parts to follow here, but yet it brings makes sense that, wow, we're walking 
And, but the law, we're activists, we're artists, we're dancers, we're, we're all of that because that's who we are as our ancestors. And as you graciously gifted us with your, your language, how and why this keeps you moving, not just being Indigenous, but if you were not Indigenous, would this be something that you could show it as an example for other women and other humans, men to follow? Definitely. It's kind of hard to see myself as not being Indigenous, though. <laughs> um, I feel like being an Indigenous person is really core to everything that I do in my everyday life. Um, in regards to my professional career life, I'm always thinking about how can I help and uplift my community and other Indigenous communities out there. Everything from my everyday decisions with my children and um, my home life has always, I've always put that being an, indig an Indigenous person and an Indigenous women, woman, um, first and foremost, when I'm making a lot of the decisions I make. But um, definitely, I feel that I almost feel like it's my obligation um, to try and bring light to a lot of the issues that my people are facing, not just specifically my tribes, but all Indigenous people, because there's very, um, there's not too many of us um, Indigenous filmmakers and producers. Um, so definitely trying to take um, what I can, take every opportunity I can to bring um, awareness to all the different topics and issues that we face um, as as indigenous people to this land. Leia, when I'm thinking about how those of us who live off the reservation, so to speak, or near two reservations, how different is navigating the systems of racism that we constantly are up against every day, even the language we speak? It's where the crisis that's going on with us because of our experience with the non-native, the situations that racism has, has set itself up. What happens to you daily? I, I realize maybe you have ceremony, yet there's that persistence, there's that resilience to keep moving because it's going to be better someday. I always like to quote um, an Indigenous woman activist that I look up to. Her name is um, Madonna Thunderhawk, and she comes from the Lakota Nation. And um, I've heard her speak several times. And one of the things that she said is that she says is as long as we have a land base, we will always be fighting. So I feel like a lot of our issues, not only bringing awareness to the larger non-Indigenous public about the issues we face, but I think it's important to create content, media, messaging to uplift our people, to remind them that we have this inherent resilience within us mm -hmm. and that we need to keep going and we need to keep fighting and we need to be, um, you know, just persistent at all of the issues that we face. Because I think as long as we're here standing today and we have, we have land, we have, um, we're still preserving our languages, cultural traditions, I feel like we're going to be in this never ending fight. So we have to, we have to just continue to go, keep going, moving forward in the best way that we know how. You mentioned um, 
obligation. And to me, that feels like there's a responsibility rather than a right to something, which is to me, Western, I have a right to do this, have a right. Yet it's an obligation, as you, you mentioned. The Now the movie, Bring Her Home, when you follow these three indigenous women, this artist, this activist, and this politician, who are these women? And why did you decide to follow their lives as they look to missing and murdered indigenous women to, to highlight? Um, yes, I definitely had a hard time narrowing down what stories and individuals I was going to follow. If I had the resources and the time, um, I would definitely follow hundreds of women who are in this fight. But um, being, you know, like from a public television station and having to fundraise my own funds and, um, you know, just having an hour, the time frame to capture um, moving stories that will help impact the emotional experience of what individuals go through. I had to definitely hone in and narrow down on specific stories. And those stories that I chose to follow were stories that I feel that I could relate to the most. Um, some of these women, two of the women are actually within my own community here in the Twin Cities Native community. Um, and one of the women, Representative Ruth Buffalo, is somebody that I admire. And I actually um, had the opportunity to meet her for the first time at, a, at an event um, in St. Paul. I believe the event was Facing Race Awards. And she was the keynote speaker. This was a few years ago. And just the way she introduced herself talked about um, the importance of matriarchy and how she's choosing to, I believe she said, carry on a name that was taken from her, her last name, Buffalo. How um, she talked about the difficulties of, you know, boarding schools and the ways that we were stripped of our identity and how she's trying to reclaim those, that thing that maybe, maybe people may think it's a name, but to her, it's it, it carries a long legacy of, of her family. So I got to hear about her close personal experience of searching for Savannah Graywin. And that's definitely a case that a lot of us Native people um, became aware of when it was happening in Fargo, North Dakota. So she, um, the other two women, Angela Two Stars, and Misty Babineau are members of the Minneapolis Native community. And I definitely wanted to highlight, I guess you can say, stories that have not really been um, highlighted recently. And that's how MMIW affects urban Native women. Um, some of the content that's already out there that exists on the topic of MMIW, MMIWR, deal with public law 280 about the jurisdictional confusion and how um, that's a big factor in regards to um, the high rates of MMIW. But as an urban Indian myself, I grew up in Los Angeles area. I now live, make my home in Twin Cities area. And I've lived in, I live, have lived and currently live in large populated areas of of urban natives, but we don't have those same um, difficulties and challenges when it comes to reservation and off-reservation um, challenges such as jurisdictional laws. So I really wanted to focus on individual women that were 
we're, we're living in the city, dealing with these um, issues, but at the same time, we're women who I could see as examples that they're doing something about it, but at the same time, finding ways to heal and finding ways to bring that healing to the larger community, but in different sectors as well. That's why I try to highlight the arts community, um, the politics, lawmakers, and activism. Um, so I try to make sure to strategically pick individuals that I could kind of cover a little wider range, but also talk about topics in regards to invisibility. Um, a lot of us face in the inner city where we're not even, um, I guess you can say, there's not even statistics that are kept on us when native women go missing or murdered in the cities. We're not even given that like it was a Native American women. We're kind of just either that's parts not filled in or people never follow up the law enforcement. So there's a lot of just being dismissed and not seen and not heard within the city. So I really try to focus on on that to bring a different angle at the topic with the film. This is so important that you said finding ways to heal and it's very surprising, but not that there is no, if any, statistics on urban Native women missing. Um, one of the things that I often go to in First Voices here is that one of your interviewees, I believe it was the activist, who said, we have tricked ourselves into believing that being extractive and domineering is the way to be. Quite often, I learned that in the Lakota language, um, in the middle of Birkenau and Auschwitz, um, Virgil Kilstrate said, and I asked him the question, do we have a, a word for or a concept for domination? And he said, no word, no concept. And that made this statement that one of the women you're filming is said this statement. We have tricked ourselves into believing that being extractive and domineering is the way to be. Now, if I were a non-native person, I would like try to put that back in the box so that I could, you know, make sense of that statement. Can you finish that statement? Um, Misty Babineau, she um, is a member of the Red Lake Nation. So her story of her activism not only follows her trying to, you know, using her personal experiences to testify to create a missing and murdered Indigenous women task force um, in the state of Minnesota, but she is also an activist against the pipeline, um, line three to be specific. So that quote in the trailer, she was actually referring to um, the consequences and the impact of line three with large um, non-Indigenous, the statistics, mainly white male men, pipeline workers coming through and throughout um, native territories. As you can tell, um, Pipe, the, the pipelines, a lot of the pipelines within the recent decades have been going through and around a lot of our indigenous homelands and just the results and the impact of that in regards to the high rates of women that have gone missing or have experienced sexual assault. So her story kind of entails that a bit about her fight against that. And I think she's just trying to I think it's not so political 
in regards to, because I think when we talk about extraction processes and the negative effects and positive effects, it gets into politics. But I think her as an individual, she's really trying to strip those layers behind it when it comes to when we nor- when we knowingly know that something is good for the economy, but we also know that bringing large amounts of male construction workers to vulnerable populations, that there's a definitely an uptick in an increase in sexual assaults, violence. Mm-hmm. So without, with knowing that and data to back that, a lot of people just turn their heads and say, well, it's bringing us money. It's helping the economy. And she's mainly just saying, well, it's definitely hurting communities negatively, but at the same time, not only are you focusing on the negative impacts of this, but what is it doing to Mother Earth? What is it doing to um, the thing that provides us the necessity to live, the, the longer impacts of that when it comes to, you know, just potential oil spills and and just it's just not a good way for the future. Um, so I think that was that her line in the doc in the trailer was definitely addressing this broader idea, this Western idea where um, we're always looking ways to capitalize on things to help boost the economy. But how do we boost ourselves as as communities and individuals without that negative impact? We're speaking with Leah Hale. Director, producer of Bring Her Home, which is following three Indigenous women as they look to find and help and support and make new ways of healing in an effort to, to as you say, create social change. And you specified in, in the bio Midwest region, but I think it's going to have a bigger impact than Canada, the rest of the United States. You know, we, we expect a film, you said, in 2022 soon. Yes, um, we're actually in conversations with some distributors, so we're hoping to probably know in the next few weeks um, when we'll actually have a national PBS broadcast air date, and we'll definitely start announcing that through social media platforms and those types of things, so um, we're hoping to release that information as as soon as we um make that final confirmation on which distributor is um, going to be picking it up. Well, Leah Hale, it's nice to have you here. And thank you for doing the work. I just feel it behind everything you're doing. The last time I interviewed you, like, wow, this is what we need. And you're in a place, you're in a position. And I, I heard something said about, we're in a position, we're placed in a position of power, not to dominate or, or lead, but to show as, as we as Native people do often do, we show by example, because that's our best um, example of learning. And I think that's what's missing from, you know, at large education processes out there, because we're always instructed to do something and never shown how to do it. And I think that's what you're doing. But I want to thank you. It's a great honor to have you here. Did I leave anything out? Um, no, I just one thing I wanted to include is the film is actually um my first time doing what you call a verite film where you follow individuals and you kind of go on a journey with them 
and you're not specifically um, like it's not necessarily sit down formal talking head interviews, which a lot of PBS documentaries tend to be. And from my perspective, when it comes to documentaries on the native on native topics or issues, it's always explaining to the general public about um, about us. And it's always content to try to understand the Native experience. But I feel that what I'm trying to do with this documentary is create content for us because there's never content for us. It's always like explaining to non-Native people like yeah. about us, like if we're something from the past. So I'm really doing my best to try and um, make content for our communities to uplift us. And then to me, the larger public if they want to watch it and learn from it, that's more than welcome. But I'm definitely trying to make content to uplift our people. So that's um, my number one goal. And sometimes people may seem like that's contradictory to to what I guess you could say public media is. But I'm just like, well, if you hire a Native person to tell Native stories, I'm going to do my best to tell it for native audiences because there's definitely a lack of that in the in the industry so i'm really happy to have that um opportunity to do so um within the twin cities pbs um station that i'm at and i just want to say thank you so much for bringing me on the show i really appreciate having these conversations with you and i just really value um you as as a as a radio um, personality and your um, way of disseminating indigenous knowledge out there and indigenous projects like my, like the project that I'm working on. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. So good. Okay. Thanks. And and stay good. We need people like you. We need young people like you. So. Okay. Watch your copy. And yes, that was Leah Hale from the Sisseton Sisiton, Wapaton, Dakota, and Dene Nations. Dene is another word that you all know as Navajo. And she makes her home in St. Paul, Minnesota, and with her companion and children. And she's a producer for the Twin Cities PBS and best known for her feature documentary, The People's Protectors, now working on the film Bring Her Home, which follows three indigenous women fighting to vindicate and honor their missing and murdered relatives. I'd like to say thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Tio Kusengostos and Doksha Ake Telo, and we'll go out with that you all are just a speck of dust. Yeah, you think about that, that just even being a speck of dust is something to be thought about and felt, and um, if you could only understand the quantum physics of languages, of languages that the Earth speaks that we speak as indigenous peoples, and we've been trying to say this since 1492 and now beyond. So I'd like to thank you for joining us here. Ushimalai Oyate Wani Wachi Chuelo. Uh-huh.